It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. People feel like they're really pushing back and they're helping by sharing these videos and sharing these bogus statistics and getting really, really worked up about this stuff. And they really very rarely stop to ask themselves, is this actually happening? Who are the people that this is happening to? Have the people who we think it's happening to said it's happening to them? This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Really excited about sharing our main segment with you today. Mike Rothschild, who follows conspiracy theories, internet nonsense, QAnon in particular, is going to join us to talk about what is going on in that world right now and why so many people that you love might be posting about child sex trafficking constantly on the internet. If you are listening with kids, this is not an explicit conversation at all. He is just going to explain why that particular thread is so prevalent in the conspiracy theory world and more generally about the approach that we can take with people who are connected to that world. But first, we got a lot of news to cover. Before we get started, we wanted to remind you 
that every weekday, Monday through Thursday, I do a quick news brief on IGTV on our Instagram page. I go through the top headlines, usually five minutes or less. And if you're a patron, I post that audio on our Patreon page as well. So you get that in your Patreon feed every day. And then on Fridays, we have news quizzes with our kids, which is pretty fun. So if you're looking for a way to stay on top of the headlines that is quick, easy, and I like to think drama-free, then go follow us on Instagram or become a patron. So we have crossed 5 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States. We have crossed 160,000 deaths. I thought this was really helpful perspective on where we are. It took us 99 days into this crisis to reach a million cases. It took 17 days to go from 4 million to 5 million cases. More than 97,000 children tested positive in the last two weeks of July. So we are definitely in a period, at least in parts of the country, that feel like an escalation from where we've been. I think, so as not to be unduly dramatic, that this framework from Lori Garrett that Axios reported, a Pulitzer-winning science journalist, has been very helpful. She said, it's best to assume that this is a new permanent feature in the human landscape. And that means that we have to come up with policies and responses that see it as a fire that moves around with the winds. And we spot the first embers and we put it out fast. We have to have policies that assume the virus will be constantly trying to revisit our communities. We need to just think, okay, it's just like knowing I live in Florida and a hurricane will come or I live in New York and we might have a blizzard. That feels honest, pragmatic, achievable to me. Yeah, I like the idea that you are looking at your area and your vulnerabilities because I'm getting really worn out on the national storyline about COVID just because I think it is supremely unhelpful to look at big numbers without looking at what's happening sort of at a state by state or county by county level. You know, Axios does a, a map where it breaks down whether states are increasing or decreasing. And that map has looked more positive than it has in months over the last few weeks. You know, several states are seeing plateaus. The amount of states that are seeing increases is not as large as it has been in the past. And that's the thing. It's like when you say, well, we're escalating. Are we talking about an escalation from the beginning of this month? Are we talking about an escalation from March? What state are we talking about? What county are we talking about? So I love the idea that, okay, well, let's think about where is the fire in our community? Is there a fire in our community or is there smoke? Is there something we can do on the ground where we live? You know, there's things we can all do, like wear masks and social distance. But I think staying highly attuned to your area is more helpful because the national storylines, I'm going to be really honest, they give me anxiety. They stress me out. Often I feel very discombobulated because the level of concern that I read about at a national level does not align with what I'm hearing from either our local health department or our local health officials or our local doctors. So it's just, in, so instead of constantly trying to make those two align. I like the idea of just, okay, well, where, again, where's the fire or the hurricane or the tornado or whatever in your community? What do you need to be paying attention to? I appreciate the national framework. I'm in a slightly different place. I totally agree in terms of precautions. 
how far do we go in terms of economic shutdown or opening, even though I, I think that binary is a little bit silly. Um, but what are we doing locally, I think, should be driven by the situation locally. And the situation locally should be measured by how many people are getting tested, what's the positivity rate of those tests, what's our hospital capacity, where are we on our ability to get personal protective equipment, et cetera. The national framework for me orients me in what my friend Shannon, who is a scientist, so brilliantly describes as like this process whereby we're all living the scientific method. And so I like reading stories that help me know where we are in that scientific method that, oh, we thought that children couldn't spread very well. It looks like children are spreading at a greater rate than maybe we assumed at one point. So that's a new learning. Oh, we told you this? Not really anymore. Looks like that. I think it's good to kind of follow the overall thread because this is such a new thing. In my life, though, I am trying to feel almost no anxiety about the risk of actually contracting COVID-19 because I do feel that we've been given really good guidance that you wear a mask, you wash your hands, you stay away from super spreader events. You know, if there are going to be 100 people in the room, I don't want to be in the room. We wash our hands over and over and over again. We go outside as much as we can. I, I feel pretty comfortable in mitigating the risk. And that, to me, goes back to that hurricane or fire metaphor or blizzard. When you know there's a risk out there, you take reasonable precautions and you live your life with those precautions in place, right? And that's that's where I would like to be. I would like to know that in my community, we are all agreeing to take those reasonable precautions and, and live our lives best we can. Well, I mean, I think the only problem with that is Following the scientific method through a headline-driven approach is really problematic. And so when we see headlines that say, oh, so many thousand kids infected, so many kids spreading, or, you know, even headlines about mask safety and which masks are more effective than less effective, I mean— we all know that correlation is not causation, and that's something that in the scientific you know, community and with research you have to constantly pay attention to. And I just think like headlines are really given and really can lean into the correlation, not causation, because they're just not a place for in-depth analysis. And when, you know, I think the fire analogy only gets you so far to a certain extent because with this there are so many factors. That's the paradox paradox of COVID, right, is in some ways there are truths about COVID-19 that are not debatable and that are simple. Wear a mask, stay socially distanced. And then at the same time, like even that is you start to ask questions like you do in the scientific method and everything starts to get much more complicated. What kind of mask? How far are you socially distanced? Are you outside? Are you inside? Are you around these people? Did somebody travel? Where did they travel from? Have they been quarantined? You know what I mean? Like, and then you, and I just, I don't think that national storyline really gives the depth to any sort of analysis to these factors. I think, especially with kids, I'm a huge, huge fan of Emily Oster and have learned like watching her break down those headlines and break down those studies that like, it's never that simple. And it's, you know, I'm not even comfortable saying, oh, well, kids are spreading it more than we thought they were. Because I think some of those big storylines are only giving you a tiny fraction of the details you need to really assess whether that's the conclusion you should make. You know, like, I don't think that national media 
and scientific method, even though I agree with you that we're sort of living that to a certain extent. I just don't think they are aligned. <laughs> like I don't think they operate in the same level. Well, I would rather have that information and have to dig into it and and read a lot. I mean, I'm not living in the headlines as much as I'm living in like Atlantic articles, right, that really that really mm-hmm. do try to give nuance and substance to it. But I would rather have the information than not. I mean, I I almost feel like what I'm hearing from you and and maybe I'm wrong about this. The fatigue that accompanies it is partially the information and its framing, but partially the way that people around us react to it. Mm-hmm. And I completely get that. I do think that we're kind of wearing each other out, either from the the end of the spectrum that's like, oh, it's all overstated. Don't worry about it. We can do whatever to the end of I've read every single article that's come out and I will stay in my home forever because of it. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think what's so challenging is that we're all making different meaning of the information that we're consuming and trying to like gather the people around us to feel the same way. And that is tiring. Yeah. And again, it just goes back to even with that sort of analogy of a natural disaster. Look, the truth is people see fires or tornadoes or hurricanes coming towards their house and they make different decisions. We've seen that over and over and over again. You know, some people ride it out. Some people move and don't stay where there's a wildfire. Some people rebuild and try again. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that's the other thing, too, is, you know, as we're taking in all this information, it's like, it's you're right. People want there's this undercurrent of we all must feel the same way about this. That is particularly exhausting. Well, we're seeing that undercurrent of people having different reactions to the oncoming disaster play out in Congress where we've been unable to reach agreement on another measure to help with the economic fallout from COVID. And so over the weekend, the president issued several executive orders. I loved the dispatch's characterization of these executive orders as his Frankenstein Cares Act. They called Mm -hmm. it a hodgepodge of zigzag strategies that vary wildly in both their likely constitutionality and likely effectiveness. I'm struggling with the framing on this as well. I'm just cranky today. That's the long and short of it, guys. Let me just give that precursor. Because I'm bugged by the idea that, like, well, the two sides couldn't agree. I mean, with all due respect, the Republican Party couldn't agree among themselves to come to the table and discuss the bill that the Democratic Party already passed through the House. That's the framing of this that bugs me is like, well, they couldn't. And look, I know that this is a this is primarily a political act to apply pressure to the negotiation process. And I get that. And that's fine. But sometimes I'm bugged by the way the media plays along with like, well, Congress couldn't decide when that's, you know, look, that's not back to my original point. True of a scientific method, true of a negotiation process. A simplified headline is really never going to give you the full picture of what's going on. I think that's true here. Just like any kind of headline about, oh, well, he took executive action. Well, yeah, kind of sort of he did, but not really. So our Nightly Nuance family on Patreon Everybody there is practically a legal scholar at this point, right? (laughs) And you know the answer here when someone says, can he do this? The answer is, it doesn't really matter because Mm -hmm. these executive orders, I think, are constitutionally defective. But who cares if no one challenges him in court? And politically, that probably won't happen. And even if it did, 
a court is likely to not get involved in this dispute and certainly not to get involved in this dispute in time for it to make much of a difference. And Mm -hmm. also, like Sarah just said, there's not a lot actually happening in these executive orders. So to be fair about it, the one big thing that the president has done here that he can do is he has waived penalties for late federal student loan payments. He can do that. He cannot unilaterally freeze evictions nationwide. And if you read that order, it basically goes through members of the cabinet and says, why don't you think about some ways we could help with people not getting evicted? Can you meditate on this, please? It's like a freaking journaling prompt. There are there's language like should identify or should explore all avenues. Uh, But there isn't anything actually being done on evictions here because the president doesn't have that power on unemployment. Essentially, the president has issued orders to spend FEMA disaster money, of which there is never enough for natural Mm -hmm. disasters, to take money out of FEMA and create a new program that sort of sits beside unemployment insurance because he doesn't have the power to actually monkey with employment insurance. That's what Congress has to do. So he has said, well, FEMA will have a grant program. And if a governor decides to apply for some of that grant money, then FEMA will give the governor money to create a program that will be administered like unemployment insurance, but it'll be a little bit different And the federal government will put in 75 cents and the state 25 cents for every dollar that goes out. And we can pay up to $400 in benefits for individuals under that program. It is incredibly difficult for me to see how this happens in a timely enough way to actually help people. And the other thing is states are broke. (laughs) You know, states are supposed to contribute here and states don't have any money. Well, and I I mean, I think that's the issue, right? We've all seen those photos. If you live in Florida, if you live in Kentucky, if you live dang near anywhere, you know that the administration of unemployment benefits, because of a lot of reasons, the flood of people applying, the decades of undercutting of the process has not been going smoothly. So I definitely think what we should do is add on a layer of complexity and then require states who are already going through fiscal crises to pitch in on the bottom line. Like this is going, this is not going to happen. I can't imagine a state participating in this. I think Governor DeWine of Ohio already said like, yeah, I don't think we're going to do this. (laughs) They have enough on their plates. The other piece here is the president is purporting to establish a freeze on the payroll taxes. This is difficult. There is a federal law that says the government can suspend tax collection for up to a year in disaster zones. But this would mean the president has declared the whole nation a disaster zone and that every single person in the population up to making like $96,000 a year needs to have their tax obligations suspended. So what the president has done is deferred the due date on payroll taxes and promises that if he wins re-election, he'll permanently forgive those taxes. Now, that is ridiculous, and I think borders on something like extortion, because the president doesn't have the power to forgive those taxes. This has to come from Congress. But 
it is possible that those taxes could not be collected for some period of time. Again, you're asking people who are already stretched pretty thin to make these dramatic administrative changes. And the payroll taxes go to fund Social Security, which we all know is never in a very fiscally sound place to begin with. He had to do this through executive action because no one in Congress thinks this is mm-hmm. the right thing to do. You can't find Republicans who think that this is the right thing to do in big enough numbers to advance this legislation. So, you know, the president is really is reaching here. Well, I think what he's doing, again, is a purely political act. What he's trying to do, besides just accomplishing this payroll freeze, which he's wanted from the beginning that nobody else wanted outside the constitutional constraints of our form of government, is hoist a political football at Joe Biden and say, well, Joe Biden wants to raise taxes because he's going to come in and put these payrolls taxes back in place and he's not going to forgive the deferral. And I think, you know, the best thing that the Biden campaign has begun to do and should continue to do is to point out that this is an attack on Social Security and Medicare, the very thing that he's promised from the beginning, beginning that he would not attack. And that's clearly what this is. Getting at their sources of funding is the surest and best way to undercut systems that are popular, needed, but always a little bit vulnerable. So, you know, I think that's what all of this is. It's all a political act. It's to shift a a little bit of the heat back to the Democrats because the Republican Party, because they couldn't, you know, sort of come to agreement on their own, were feeling that heat. And look, I'm not saying it's totally unsuccessful. You're right. I think suing to, you know, undercut these actions, memorandums, whatever, would take a lot of political will and would not be particularly popular. So, but I hope that, and I I can't imagine that Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer are going to let these actions just completely undercut the negotiations and particularly the, you know, the detaching these relief negotiations from government funding, which is coming up as soon as well. Before we move on to our main segment, we wanted to talk about a couple of international issues beginning in Hong Kong. So just a quick review. You know, Hong Kong has had protests for a long time, going back to pre-pandemic, about its autonomy from China. And the Chinese Communist Party very much wants to bring Hong Kong away from that autonomy back into sort of the People's Republic system of government. And that has escalated over time because of that escalation and specifically because of a new law that really undercuts freedom of speech in Hong Kong and the ability to criticize China and organize against Chinese control. The United States administration issued sanction on 11 senior authorities in Hong Kong, including Carrie Lam, who is the executive in that country. And now China is sanctioning U.S. officials in response. And those officials include a whole bunch of people in Congress, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, also the executive director of the Human Rights Watch, which is probably more significant than any of those members of Congress, and the president of Freedom House. So people who have been speaking out about Hong Kong and about Chinese oppression in Hong Kong. And the other, you know, really dire signal of this situation deteriorating to me is the arrest of Jimmy Lay, 
who is a media tycoon, he operates a company that publishes a pro-democracy tabloid and frequently condemns the Communist Party in China. Uh, He was arrested under that new national security law and this massive raid of his business took place. So things are not getting better. I feel like we've been using the word escalate with regards to the United States and China for like solidly three years. I mean, I I think... You know, I don't really want to say we're at war because that word that word doesn't mean what I want it to mean. But escalating conflict is really not getting at it anymore. And I'm not really sure what the right language is, but we are not escalating conflict. We are fully in conflict with China to the point where, you know, there are reports that (laughs) Russia is trying to get Trump reelected and China and Iran are trying to get. Biden elected. So we have foreign powers interfering in our election as sort of like a proxy conflict. And I think so many of the ways like TikTok and I mean, there's a reason that you read about China and the United States, be it TikTok, be it Hong Kong, be it the election every single day, because this is a real Again, I don't want to say the word war, but it's like a, it's almost like a cold war going on between the United States and China. Well, and in the kind of bigger picture, it's another place where you see democracy under attack in the world. And that segues to Belarus, where a presidential election occurred on Sunday and the reported results were a victory, an 80 percent victory for the current president, Alexander Lukashenko. He has been president there since 1994 and is sometimes referred to as Europe's last dictator. The opposition candidate Svetlana Tikhanovskaya does not agree with the results and went into hiding the night before the election because several senior members of her campaign were detained by police. Well, and she's only the candidate because they arrested her husband, who is the original candidate. So independent watchdog groups and local media said that Internet outages had been deliberately put into place to impact voting, that there were discrepancies in the vote count. And now we have massive protests with a very violent police response. You know, there was protest in Belarus. There's protest in Lebanon. You know, the arrest of Jimmy Lay in Hong Kong, who used to fund and organize protests. I just, you know. I think it is much like the United States, the case that COVID-19 and just sort of global unrest is accelerating and growing. And I thought I hope particularly in Belarus that, you know, I think it's a very delicate situation and we'll have to watch these protests carefully. But I hope that it leads to the pro-democracy change that people of Belarus so clearly want. You know, another thing to think about with Belarus is that it shares borders with both Russia and Ukraine, in addition to Poland, Lithuania and Latvia. And it was part of the former Soviet Union. We know that disruption of democracy is a goal Mm -hmm. for Russia. We know that disruption of democracy is a goal for China. 
We just had an intelligence official testify in the United States that you again see Russia's efforts to interfere in our 2020 election in favor of Trump. That official also testified that China is interested in interfering in favor of Biden. And again, I don't think they care who wins. It is the delegitimizing of our elections. It is the it is just the interference for interference sake, right, to undermine trust in our process. That seems to be the goal. And so why do you think that you they, that they don't care who wins? I just think they don't. I don't think it matters much at all to either of these countries who is the president, as long as a significant portion of the United States questions who that person should be. Um, mm-hmm. I think if they, I think if there was a real investment in the in the winner, you would see alignment between Russia and China on which direction to push, and you might see a bunch of countries getting in line around that. Um, I think. Well, see, I don't think that's true though, because I think Trump, I think Trump has been way worse for China than he has been for Russia. So I think that it makes sense that they would be. I don't know. I think they do care a little bit. I think that, like you said, if you're if you're a communist country, you always want to present or if you're an authoritarian dictatorship like Russia, you always want to put, present democracy as like, see, it's not that great of a solution anyway. Like it's not stable, blah, blah, blah. I get that. And I think they both have that goal. But I think if I'm China or if I'm Iran, I have interest at stake in the same way, you know, I, I hate to align Wall Street with communist China, but like in the same way that like everybody, everybody's interest in this sort of lineup is served by some stability. And I think that that's why I think it's the opposite. I don't think it's that they just want to sow discord. I think that they realize to a certain extent, too much instability in the United States harms their interest as well. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being too I'm giving them too much of a benefit of the doubt. I don't know. I mean, I, that makes sense to me. I'm I'm open to that line of thinking. I do think that what you see and I mean, I guess the question in China is, is their interest in economic stability going to overwhelm other interests at play in the right. relationship? Because, you know, we talk about the relationship with China as though it's one thing and right, it's right, right, right. a lot of things. Either way, I think it serves all of us to pay attention to what goes on, especially in countries like Hong Kong and Belarus, that are really a window into larger geopolitical issues. In addition to caring about the people who live in those countries, this is not to be dismissive of the like mm-hmm. nine and a half million people who live in Belarus. Right. As we continue to think about the 19th Amendment's passage and the anniversary of that passage coming up this month, I sat down with Jane and Ellen, my daughters, to talk a little bit about what women's suffrage means to us. Okay, who's here? Ellen. How old are you, Ellen? Five. And who else? Jane. How old are you, Jane? Nine. Jane, do you remember what suffrage means? Well, I know what a suffragette means. A suffragette is... A person who fights for rights. Mm-hmm. And what? why do you know about suffragettes? Because I was Susan B. Anthony for a school project. So what was Susan B. Anthony's deal? Can you talk a little bit about her? So Susan B. Anthony, she um, just fought with uh, her partner. Um, she wanted everyone... Uh, well, girls to have the right to be free and vote and be like equal, like boys, basically. Ellen, did you know that girls have not always been allowed to vote? 
Yes. What do you think about that? Do anything really? I think this. Ellen's punching her her hand right now. It makes her, makes you mad. The girls haven't always had the right to vote. So people like Susan B. Anthony worked hard for girls to get the right to vote. Now, do we remember, Jane, what the problem is with that that we've talked about a few times? Um, Who did Susan B. Anthony and some of the other suffragists not fight for? Black and brown. Black and brown women, right? Yes. And people. And so what's really important to me is we're coming up on this big, exciting anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which let girls vote, is that you all know that for the rest of your lives, there's going to be work to do to make people really free and equal and have the same opportunities. And I don't ever want you to decide that being a girl comes before being a person who values people whose skin is different than yours or who have less money than you do or who have a family that looks different from yours because we don't really make progress if we're not bringing everybody with us in that progress. So this was a big deal that they got the right for white women to vote, but it wasn't good enough and it hurt a lot of people in the process. And we don't want to do that. You have anything else you want to talk about? Do you think you'll vote when you are 18 and can? Uh-huh. Yes. What about you, Ellen? Do you think you'll vote? Yes. I think it's important to vote because people have fought hard to get that right for everyone. And there are still ways that people are fighting to make sure that you can actually go vote and have your vote counted. And I hope that you all will always care about that for everybody else. Thanks for talking to me about this. You're welcome. Bye. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. 
you gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are so happy to have Mike Rothschild with us, a journalist, researcher, and debunker of conspiracy theories and fringe beliefs. I like, Mike, how your bio says that you work on general nonsense on the internet. Yes, that's, Don't we that, all? and isn't that isn't that what the internet basically is? Uh-huh. Yes, chronicled in your first book, The World's Worst Conspiracies, which was published earlier this year. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I have so many questions for you. First, I would love to know why do you do this? <laughs> well, someone has to. No. Um, oh, blessings. I, <laughs> I, you know, I've always been interested in. Conspiracy theories, fringe beliefs, weird scams, kind of anything off the beaten path that people believe for some reason. And, you know, I used to be in really into the Art Bell show, uh, you know, the Coast to Coast AM radio show. And he would tell these really fantastical stories about UFOs and crop circles and conspiracies. And it was always fascinating to me, not because I believed it, but because they were just such great stories. And a few years ago, I just kind of started to drift into this professionally and have figured out a way to to do it. And of course, now I'm busier than ever debunking everything from, you know, COVID stuff to election stuff to just general political conspiracies. And I just I really enjoy kind of figuring out not just why something isn't true, but why people believe it is true and kind of trying to meet people halfway there and and sort of helping them through figuring out that maybe there's another way to see things. You know, it feels like the fantastical stories often help people make sense of the world in a way that they feel like their reality is less fantastical, even though the rest of us are looking at these conspiracy theories and thinking, holla what? But it feels like they meet a very important psychological need when the world feels confusing or scary. 
Yeah, they really do. Conspiracy theories help to make sense out of things that don't make sense and help provide better explanations for things where the explanation that we're given just isn't good enough. You know, I think that's why Mm -hmm. JFK conspiracy theories continue to be such a big part of our culture now, you know, 50 plus years after the assassination. It's not because we believe that any one particular group did it. We don't believe that it was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone because JFK deserves something bigger and grander than that. He deserves Mm. better than just some guy with a rifle who got a good shot off. He deserves a big conspiracy and a whole bunch of shadowy players. And so we want that to be true. And so we convince ourselves that it has to be. Right. I like how you mentioned that you try to think about what is true here or what's a thread of truth. And I wonder how you approach when you hear something brand new that hasn't crossed your radar before. How do you approach your research about it? Because I hear from listeners who are like, it sounds like you, Beth, are automatically discrediting anything that is a conspiracy theory as being false. And, And I don't personally feel that way, but I find it hard to talk about how to to know, like, where is the kernel of truth maybe from where this started or a basic need, at least that I understand, to an outgrowth that seems totally divorced from reality? Sure. Usually when something crosses my path and something new crosses my path basically every day now, the first thing I try to think about is, is a conspiracy related explanation necessary to explain what is happening? Can can the event that's going on be taken at face value or does it have to involve something bigger and something that we aren't being told? And the vast majority of the time, it doesn't. You know, things just are what they are. And if there is a sort of, you know, person caused explanation, it's usually based on either incompetence or greed or uh, just malaise. So many of the things that happen in our world are just the result of somebody making a mistake or somebody letting something get out of control or not doing their job. And it's really hard for us to look at something big and bad that happens and think of it as an accident or something natural. We want there to be a person who caused it. I know I think that's why there are so many conspiracy theories with the COVID pandemic. We we want it to be the result of a plot. We don't want it to be the result of you know, the government not moving quickly enough, people not taking actions in their own life, the, um, you know, medical misinformation. We want it to be something bigger than it is because we don't want to accept that life is very often just a bunch of happenstance occurrences that we don't have a lot of control over. Well, what I always try to say is you see the repercussions of sort of this negligence or malaise or greed or just power in in our lives. We all went to high school and saw the kids that got away with stuff because their parents were powerful or school board attorneys or on the school board. Like it's the same thing at higher levels of society. People with access to resources or power get away with things. And that sucks. And I agree that it sucks. But to me, it's like I don't understand why making it a grand global conspiracy makes you feel better about that. It makes me feel better to think, well, this is just this is what happens when you get a bunch of humans and some have access to power and some don't. Then, well, it's this global meeting. I always tell people, I'm like, you know, you've been in a room where humans try to coordinate at some point in your life. Did it always go well? 
Like, it's like Veep. It really is. Yeah. And it's just so hard. I don't understand why people can't extrapolate their own experiences with power or greed or their own experiences with a lack of human compromise and coordination and particularly secret keeping, which we're very bad at. Sure. And extrapolate that out, too. <laughs> sure. Sure. It, it's amazing what you need to believe humans are capable of to believe that some of these conspiracy theories are real. You have things like the you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories where you would have needed hundreds, if not thousands of people to be involved in what happened. And how do you ensure that all of those people keep their secrets? How do you ensure that those people don't get drunk and blab it to somebody at a bar? How do you ensure that everyone does their job just right? You can't. Things don't work that way. I, you know, I've been in like event fundraisers where there's like five people and we can't agree on anything. And, and no, nobody can keep a, a plan straight or a secret. And it's just people generally just aren't very good at that kind of thing. And to believe in conspiracy theories means that they are the best at it, that we are so good at these incredibly complicated and convoluted plots that they just go off with, at the drop of a hat. But at the same time, you also have to believe that the people who are pulling off these convoluted plots are also so bad at it that they are immediately discovered by mm -hmm. totally untrained and inexperienced internet researchers who found mm -hmm. something on Google. So it's, totally. it's, it's balancing this belief in sort of omnipotence and incompetence. And it's just I don't know how people who believe this stuff aren't exhausted all the time. I think exhaustion is a perfect jumping off point to talk about what I perceive to be an enormous need among our listeners. And that is to understand why all of their social media feeds are being lit up with posts about child sex trafficking. Sure. Can you walk sure. us through <laughs> what is happening Sure. So I'm I'm guessing that you're talking in particular about the QAnon conspiracy theory, but in general about child trafficking and sex trafficking conspiracy theories as a whole. So the first thing to understand is that this is not new. You know, we've had conspiracy theories about trafficking and white slavery and pimping and child sex, that stuff's been around for centuries. And there's always some quasi-organized group of people that we don't like who are who are behind it. It's the, you know, the Catholics and their network of orphanages. It's the Freemasons. It's the Illuminati. It's, it's always the Jews. And now it's this deep state cabal. So this is the stuff that you're seeing in your feeds is, is not new. It was not invented last year. It is not an outgrowth of like Jeffrey Epstein or, or stuff like that. It's always been with us. It's now just a lot more available. That's true of conspiracy theories in general where they are – there's not more of them. They're just easier to find. So in general, I think what, what powers a lot of this stuff is that people really do want to feel like they're making a difference. People want to feel like they are – helping and that they're fighting to save children and that they're, you know, they're doing what the, the cabal doesn't want them to. So you, people feel like they're, they're really pushing back and they're helping by sharing these videos and sharing these bogus statistics and getting really, really worked up about this stuff. And they really very rarely stop to ask themselves, is this actually happening? Who are the people that this is happening to? Have the people who we think it's happening to said it's happening to them. Do we have 
actual accusations of a crime by people that the crime was committed against. And very often we don't. And that's not stuff that people want to think about. People want to think that they're helping. They don't want to think that they've been caught up in something that's not real. So we have an, you know, we have an urge to help, but we also have an urge to not look foolish. And when those things combine, you get things like the satanic panic of the 90s, or you get the sex trafficking panic of the 2020s. For people who are fortunate enough to not know much about QAnon, can you give us a quick overview? Absolutely. QAnon is a conspiracy theory with cultish aspects that believes that a small cadre of military intelligence officers are using the message board 8chan to leak cryptic information about an upcoming purge of the deep state. So you have messages that are sent uh, from this person or people known as Q that are about sort of goings on in this secret war involving trafficking and assassinations and politics and, you know, dark money and election fraud. And it's, it's this sort of ever increasing conspiracy theory in size and scope. But at the heart of it, it really is about we're going to stop child trafficking. And that's what the, the people who believe in Q think they're doing. They think they're fighting a secret war to stop child trafficking. Does anybody have any evidence or any idea because about who's posting this stuff? Because conspiracy theories about JFK or even Sandy Hook, even though they're perpetuated by certain media figures in the president, and so is Q, and we can get into that in a minute. Sure. I mean, somebody's making these posts from this account, right? Yes. The the general feeling among people who sort of look into this stuff is that the person who is making the Q posts has changed hands a couple of times. There are about four or five different people who claim to have started QAnon. I don't really believe any of them. I don't find any of their claims to be more compelling than any others. The person making the posts now is generally thought to be the owner of the new version of 8chan because 8chan went down last summer and it came back a few months later as uh, as basically the same thing called 8kun. And the, the general feeling is that it's the owner or the son of the owner of 8chan or 8kun who is making the posts. Now, I find that theory to be totally plausible and it, and it, it probably is him, but I've never really felt like the identity of who makes the Q posts matters because once you get past the idea that they have some connection to the president or to military intelligence or to any kind of classified or secret information, which they do not, who they are, it just doesn't matter. And it won't matter to the people who believe it. You know, you could present them with absolutely 100% ironclad evidence that the QAnon poster is just some guy who has no special access and they will figure out a way to tell you why you're making it up and that they don't care. So mm-hmm. it's it's probably been a couple of different people, but in the end, I'm more concerned about the people who believe the posts than the people who make the posts. Can you talk a little bit more about the motivations of the people who believe the posts? We have listeners who believe that that a lot of the folks in their lives who are reposting this stuff don't know a lot about QAnon. It's more about defending their vote for the president. It's more about their evangelical belief system and especially this concern about the war on child trafficking. Is that supported by evidence that you see? 
I think it varies. You know, it's really hard to sort of pin down how many people actually believe this and what their demographics are. I think that there are absolutely people who believe in QAnon who think that President Trump is absolutely infallible, that he can do no wrong, that he is 12 steps ahead of all of the people who are in opposition to him. Every time he looks weak, he's actually strong. Every time he seems like he doesn't know what he's doing, he is a million miles ahead of everybody else. I think there are absolutely people who believe that. I also think there are people who just share this because it's it's an online community. And it's an, it's a community that has sort of banded together for a purpose and it's a purpose they agree with. You know, it's a purpose that most people agree with and, you know, ending child trafficking and, and sex trafficking, you know, the vast majority of us do not like those things and want them to stop. And so Q sort of takes advantage of that by casting it as this patriotic research movement that's trying to help children. And there are a lot of people who consider themselves to be patriots who want to help children. So they share this stuff. They they share these videos. They say, oh, this really opened my eyes or, oh, I really have a lot to think about or, oh, the media didn't tell me this. It really can be as simple as that or it can be as dark and and sort of dank as they really think Hillary Clinton is a Satanist who drinks the blood of babies. I would imagine a lot of Q believers don't think that. And a few do. And Q is a big enough movement and it's kind of supple enough to let all of these people in because they're all united under the same umbrella. When you say this kind of stuff has been with us forever, which I totally agree with, but I'm wondering how much of this current conspiracy theory proliferation is a little ahistorical, either because of the role of technology or because we've never seen a president feed this type of thought process and psychological reaction, whatever you want to call it, even though we've had this type of thing before, what do you see about the current conspiracy theory explosion that seems different? Sure. I think it's both. I think on the, you know, the very basic front, yes, we have a president who didn't have a name in politics until he started to get into conspiracy theories. You know, Mm. Donald Trump really sort of began that transformation from reality TV entertainer to politician when he started questioning Barack Obama's birth certificate. That was the first real, you know, he made that presidential run in 2000, which of course he's completely um, disappeared out of his biography, but that really didn't go anywhere and didn't have any real focus. But he really came onto the modern radar as a politician when he started sort of insinuating that the president wasn't born here. And it really, so much of Trump's early appeal was anti-Obama stuff, you know, stuff about him Mm. not being a citizen, stuff about him like murdering the official who released his birth certificate. So, you know, Donald Trump really became the first conspiracy theorist president rather than the president about whom there are conspiracy theories, because that's all of them. But in general, this stuff is much easier to find now. You know, I don't I don't think that there are more conspiracy theories. You just don't have to work very hard to find them. It, it used to be that to be a conspiracy theorist, you had to you had to read the right books and you had to know where to get them. And you had to go to the, sort of the weird bookstore or the gun show or like the, the truck stop and get the right tapes or the right magazines or know the right people, get the right pamphlets. And you just don't need to do that anymore. You can go on to the social media feeds 
feeds of people like Alex Jones who have millions of followers or even some of the big QAnon promoters who have hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter. You know, this is this is now mainstream. So it's not that we have more things about which to come up with conspiracy theories. We just have more ways to communicate about them and it's easier to do it. And you don't have to do it in person. You don't have to work for it. So I I think it's the ease of availability that has changed more than anything else. Something about the QAnon stuff seems very mercenary to me. Am I wrong about that? I, yeah, I think, do you mean mercenary in terms of like people profiting off it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 100%. That is one of the queasiest things about it for me is the people who are cashing in off it. And it's, it's all over the place. If you just put in, I did this the other day, if you just put in QAnon into Amazon, you get over 2000 items. You get books, you get clothing, you get artwork, you get baby onesies, you get sweatpants. People are are taking all manner of merchandise and slapping a, you know, a flaming Q on it and selling it for 25 bucks on Amazon. Where does that money go? Who's who's making that money? Are they paying taxes on it? Is it being laundered to do something else? We have no idea. You know, you have QAnon gurus who make these YouTube videos that get hundreds of thousands of views and they get untold ad revenue. You get podcasts, you get newsletters, you got self-published books. You had a book last March, I guess March 2019, that was the number two new book on Amazon. And it was it was anonymous. It was credited to a collective of authors. Where's that money going and what are they doing with it? And nobody knows. So here's my question. It's two parts. One, what do you tell people who are struggling in their personal lives with someone they are close to who's fallen into QAnon, like the just in an interpersonal relationship, what's the best approach? And then if you don't have an interpersonal relationship where you're struggling, this, so you're just concerned about it as a citizen, what's the best thing to do? To a person who has a, a loved one or a family member struggling with Q, and I get people who direct message me on Twitter a lot and sort of tell me what's going on and, you know, what can they do? The first thing I want these people to know is that they're not alone and they're not crazy. Um, Mm. They are not the only person going through this. They are not out of their mind for having a problem with this. They, they do not have to accept it in their life. They don't have to go down the rabbit hole that their loved one has gone through. I would tell them, don't try to debunk it. Don't go toe to toe with them, you know, like trying to match fact for fact. You never win. Uh, That's why I don't debate conspiracy theory believers, because there's there's no way to win. And winning doesn't even look like anything. Um, I would say don't don't insult them. Don't call them stupid. Don't call them crazy. Chances are they're not They're They're looking for something. And whether that's a sense of community, whether that's a sense of explanation, whether that's real fear about bad things happening to children or powerful people getting away with things, that's a natural fear to have. That's a real fear. And and that deserves to be addressed. And how they're doing it, unfortunately, is this sort of anarchic cult. But you you can't insult people out of believing something because they're just going to believe it more. The thing I, I tell people is to say to their loved one that they're important to them and that they they matter and that they're worried because this person matters to them. And, it, and this person matters to them more than the conspiracy theory does to the other person. So let them know that you're there for them, that you're happy to talk with them rationally. Uh, you don't want to be sent 
10 hours worth of QAnon videos. You don't even necessarily want to engage with them publicly, but you're there for them. You're not cutting them out of their life. Now, there may be a time when you have to. That gets more extreme. But if this is just sort of a, a weird phase that somebody's going through, let them know you're there for them. You can leave it at that. You don't have to try to get them out of it because they don't want to get out of it. And they're going to mm-hmm. see that as a sign that that they're on the right track, that the knowledge that they're stumbling on is forbidden and secret and dangerous. And if uh, say you know, you're saying, oh, these people don't want me to know it, that means I should know more about it. If you just kind of let it burn out, it sometimes will. And if it gets a little deeper and darker, then you start to talk about consequences. You say, look, I don't, I don't want to be around this. And if you can't be around me without bringing up Hillary Clinton eating babies, I, then I can't be around you right now. And, you know, let them make the ultimate decision because they have to. You know, they, you, you can't pull somebody out of something that they don't want to unless you're getting into like really hardcore cult deprogramming. And that's that's just not a, a, a subject that I know enough about to be able to to answer anything there. So that's a very long winded answer to your first question. <laughs> to the second question, if you're concerned about this stuff just in general, m- practice digital hygiene. You know, don't mm. don't forward stuff. If you don't know it's true, don't you don't you don't have to share things just because you like the headline. Take mm-hmm. a few minutes and read something and and try to figure out, you know, where's it coming from? Who wrote it? Who made the video? Why did they do it? What are they trying to get out of it? Is it a news organization or is it somebody who wants money from you? You know, try to try to suss out the motives of these things. Try to suss out where they came from. If something doesn't feel true, it's probably not. And and don't share it. Don't disseminate this stuff. If we all slowed the spread of conspiracy theory material, it wouldn't spread. Or it would spread among the people who, who just want to believe all of it. And that you can take steps in your life to stop that. What do you think about YouTube taking videos down, Twitter suspending accounts, that kind of, of macro digital hygiene? I think that it it works but you have to really be committed to it. You know, we've seen on a on a smaller level that deplatforming bad actors really does work. Um, when all the social media companies took action against Alex Jones, his income streams dried up almost immediately, and he's more or less irrelevant now, to all, except to the people who have been with him since the beginning. But you can't find his stuff on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, or you have to work so hard for it that nobody bothers doing it. I think just in general, the social media companies still don't quite seem to understand what's going on here. You know, Twitter announced that they were taking this crackdown on QAnon. And I thought, okay, well, it's two years too late, but I'm really glad they're doing it. Except they didn't do anything. They banned a couple of major promoters who immediately came back with new accounts and are right back at high five figures or low six figures followers. And Twitter's done nothing about them. The harassment that Twitter was trying to stop is still going on. It's a little bit harder to find QAnon hashtags and, and videos and things, but it's not that hard. It, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of extra effort. And the people who believe this stuff have no problem making that effort. So I think that deplatforming these conspiracy theories is absolutely the right thing. But it to, to have any effect, it has to be so scorched earth that I think the social media companies are really reluctant to do it. What do you make of the 
proliferation of the QAnon stuff on Instagram now. It feels to me like with running women candidates who believe in QAnon and Mm -hmm. sort of the some I don't want to mention specific accounts, but some of the like pretty posts on Instagram that are clearly targeted at women. Yeah. Yeah. Like what what's going on there? It feels very deliberate. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, Instagram is not super my thing, but I've seen enough of this stuff on Instagram and the, you know, the big influencers who often, not always, but often tend to be young women who are suddenly really hardcore into this stuff. You know, I wonder how much of it is organic and sort of you spend so much time online that you you just get used to the way things look and the rhythms of things and how you discover information. And you think, oh, that person has a big following. I have a big following. I, I, I speak the truth. The things I put out there are real. So anybody with a big following, they, they have to be real because I'm real. And I wonder how much of it really is just not quite understanding how much garbage there is and how appealing this this garbage can be for people. I also think you you have a lot of the bigger gurus who've really gamed the system. They know how things work. They produce really flashy videos. You know, the 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 first generation of conspiracy theory videos was like four hours long and like straight to camera rambles and stock footage. But now they're short and they're slick and they've got experts and they've got really cool graphics and they're really interesting and compelling to watch. And so they stand out and you watch some of this stuff and you go, oh, this is really slickly produced. It must be expensive and therefore it must be true. And and it's just, it really almost always comes back to just not understanding how information flows on the internet and how how logical fallacies work and the and if something looks slick or authoritative that doesn't mean it's true it just means it was well made well i think that really speaks to not just digital hygiene but critical analysis as a skill and critical media consumption as a skill that we don't talk enough about that we don't teach our kids about that we don't talk about in school the idea that yeah if it is a high production value that doesn't mean that you can trust it. I mean, it's down to like high production value doesn't mean it's art either. You know, Game of Thrones is just a fancy soap opera with dragons. You know what I mean? Like it's still it's not saying anything new or fresh necessarily. And I think that's true that that sort of media analysis is really sorely lacking. And the way the Internet sort of and social media in particular swept in and filled that vacuum without a real perpetuation of the skills needed to handle it. And look, maybe that's inevitable. Maybe a technology like TV or, I don't know, the printing press or radio or the internet takes off and then we have to learn the skills in reaction to the growth of that technology. And that's just the way, that's just the flow of human history. I just think the, like you said, the the trickle down from the top, the way, you know, the ease in which it is available Although, I mean, I guess you could you could have said video, you could have made the same arguments about videotapes. You had to go find them. But the idea that you could even tape record somebody ranting for four hours and then share it was a big deal at the time. So I think that's just, you know, it can feel so overwhelming and like we're tackling something humans have never tackled before. But I think you're right. I think the most encouraging thing is like, no, this is this is a part of what happens when we live uh, together as a society and we start to tackle bigger and bigger problems and this is just sort of a 
inevitable repercussion of that. Yeah, this is the inevitable consequence of easily obtainable information mm-hmm. that is very that is everywhere. You know, we we all have sort of you know the library of Alexandria in our pocket, and right. and we also have like instant over the ocean communications in our pocket, and we can make movies with the thing in our pocket, and we're so plugged in now that we we just we kind of lose sight of what's real and mm-hmm. and that's hard that's hard for everybody you know it's hard for parents to put their phones down around their kids i've got two young kids and you know i'm i'm constantly well now being reminded by them to you know put my phone down and and live in the real world and it's it's hard because you know there's so much going on we don't want to miss anything and we're we're too plugged in and i mm-hmm. and i think we've we've lost sight of kind of how to discern what matters and what's real. You just gave me an aha moment. <laughs> when you say we're too plugged in and that feeling that we all have when we scroll, it's the mouse with the lever, right? The If it, if it spits out the, sh- the treat randomly, you press it a lot more. And so when we're plugged in, you know, we've all been in that situation where you're scrolling and something positive pops up and that that endorphin release. And then you've been in the situation where you keep scrolling and you keep scrolling and you you feel yourself doing it and you're looking for that, that release, that being plugged in. And I think that's a lot of what this conspiracy theory offers. If you're used to scrolling and scrolling and you've lost that high of that feeling of being plugged into something big and learning something and, and that great sensation where you feel like something else opened up to you because of the internet be it a relationship with somebody far away, like sort of the innocuous things we're all plugged into. And you're always searching that out. And then this thing comes along and offers you that reward on a global scale. Like not only is it a global thing you're plugging into, but it's a thing that, like you said, the ultimate reward saving children. So it's that it's feeding that need to be plugged in. It's like that. It's like searching for that and you hit and you find that release it's offering all these psychological rewards that we're all searching for when we scroll because we're so plugged in. Sure. We all want to be heard. We all want to matter. We all want to do something important. And we all feel, we all want to feel like we know what's going on. And the, you know, social media in general and conspiracy theories in particular can offer all of those things. They offer you a way to matter. They offer you secret knowledge and they offer you people who want to hear what you have to say. And that's really important. And I think it's an aspect of this stuff that we're, we're really just starting to figure out. I would love to know how you think about the intersection of QAnon and all of the theories perpetuated by it and the reality surrounding Jeffrey Epstein's life and death. Yeah, the the Epstein thing, you know, when he when he when he hanged himself, the, you suddenly had all these people were like, QAnon was right. Well, I get, Q got something right. Well, no, Q didn't. Q fans like to say that you know nobody knew about Jeffrey Epstein before us. Jeffrey Epstein was was had been in prison a decade earlier. Nothing mm-hmm. about nothing about this was secret. You know, we I find that particularly insulting to the victims who are totally, out there fighting for justice for decades. Totally. That pisses me off. Yeah, for the victims and for the journalists who yep. brought this stuff into the public. You know, this we don't know about Jeffrey Epstein because some 
internet guru anonymously put out riddles mm-hmm. about it. We know about it because his victims spoke out and because dogged reporters made sure that we knew about it and, and went through a lot to, to make sure that we knew about it. So, you know, I totally... I totally understand all of the Epstein conspiracy theories. You know, the the whole thing about Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. As, as soon as that happened, I'm like, this is going to be dry. This is the Super Bowl for conspiracy theories because this should not have happened. He should not have died in prison. You can look at any number of people who failed and any number of ways they failed, but this shouldn't have happened. And when presented with something that should not have happened, we we, we try to come up with the reasons why it did happen. And because we just we just don't want to believe that this that this could have been allowed, that somebody could have just messed up in their job and given him the means to hang himself and that the the video camera outside his cell could have been broken because this prison probably hasn't had, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, a technical upgrade in 30 years and nothing works and there's no money. We don't want to believe that it has to be a conspiracy. So. You have this this person who was involved in these these really awful things, and these awful things that QAnon kind of revolves around. And of course, it it involves the Clintons, and it involves Donald Trump, and all these other powerful people, and you know the British royal family, and and all of these other powerful people who have done who have done bad things, and and it just it all fits together to form this uber conspiracy theory. And there's there's you know it was a bonanza for all of for. Q and for all of these other conspiracy theory believers. And we forgot about the victims who are never going to get justice, who are never going to see him in a courtroom, who are never going to have to see him under questioning or, or found guilty or have to admit what he did. It's, it's like a final F you to the victims that he gets to go out on his terms. And we don't want to believe that either. Yeah. I just, I don't know how to have conversation with people about what I believe is an irrational belief that Tom Hanks is involved in a global right. child trafficking yeah. ring yeah. Um, without acknowledging, as you said, that there are a lot of powerful people with association to Jeffrey Epstein and who are being mentioned by victims. And it's I, I struggle with this yeah. particular intersection. It's maddening because it. Every time one of these celebrities is sort of ginned up as as a pedophile because of some questionable tweets they put up 10 years ago, we take our eyes off of the real problems, off the mm-hmm. real victims, off the real reasons why children go missing, which is almost always due to family, off of the real things that are driving people into desperate situations, off the real people who are hurting, you know. When we waste our time trying to debunk a picture that Tom Hanks put up of a glove on the ground and we and we we're trying to find all of the things about it that are you know it proves that he's a sex trafficker and then we start debunking it. It's just we get so worked up and we take our eyes off of what really matters and it takes so much it's like you said, it takes so much time, you know, even it's exhausting. it's I you know, I got into it with my dad. And it wasn't even a conspiracy theory. It was just a Tucker Carlson clip. And I told him, I was like, this took 30 minutes of my day. Now, that's not a huge amount of time. But when you're homeschooling because of the pandemic and you're trying to do a full time job, that's a lot. Yeah. When you're in the middle of you got your kids home and you have no idea where they're going to be going to school in a week. 
that amount of brain space and that yes. amount of time and, and emotion, it's it's exhausting. And one of the things that you see when you spend a lot of time tracking conspiracy theories online is people who are like, I woke up to this three weeks ago and I haven't gotten more than an hour of sleep a night. I've been just researching so much. And people are just like working themselves into states of exhausted delirium right now. Well, and it's such a double-edged sword because the same person who feels depleted because they had to take the mental energy to debunk it, that mental challenge is rewarding to another person. Totally. Totally. Oh, it means, oh, you put time into this. It means I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. It, it really, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's why you don't respond to trolls because yeah. trolls just want a response. They don't care what the response is. The response is the victory. And, and, and of course, now with the pandemic going on, We've all been inside for months. Yeah. A lot of people aren't working. A lot of people are just perpetually fried because maybe they are working and they've got their kids home. It's exhausting. And we start going weird places when you have either way too much time on your hands or no time on your hands. Mm-hmm. Your, your brain just goes strange places and you start watching stuff that really doesn't make a lot of sense and and you start reading things that start to back up your worldview and you want you want to be angry at somebody for doing this to you for putting you in this position where maybe you lost your job your kids lost a year of school and and you want to you want somebody to pay for it and mm-hmm. what what's so hard for so many people to comprehend is that pandemics happen now this was exacerbated by a bunch of different factors but this is not new. You know, we've had these things happen before. We've just, they've never, they've just never been this bad. I want to ask you about a tweet that I saw from Ben Collins at NBC, a series of tweets about how grueling the work of reporting on these conspiracy theories is. Can you share with us a little bit about uh, yourself and the people who do this work, how you stay grounded? What is the personal cost? I'm sure that you have people coming after you. I I would love to just, first of all, thank you for doing it and and hear a little bit about that aspect of it. Sure. Yeah, I I read Ben and I've, I've talked to Ben and I've been interviewed by him. He's he's great. And it, it is, it's, it's grueling to do this because you have to be right. You have to get everything just correct. You can't, you can't make mistakes because the people who, who believe this stuff are going to find those mistakes and they're going to find those tiny little errors and the totally inconsequential things that maybe you just missed or, or whatever, and they're going to use them against you. So the, the work is grueling because it's, it's really exacting. And it's also hard to just spend a lot of time in these mental spaces, you know, with people who are obsessed with child sex trafficking. I don't want to think about child sex trafficking and certainly not like all day, I don't want to look at anti-Semitic memes. I don't want to look at death threats. You know, that's 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 exhausting for me and for the people who do this. So, yeah, it, it is grueling. And the way at least that I stay grounded is, you know, I've got two, two young kids, uh, both boys, six and four, and I try to just spend as much time around them and, and my family. I, I was going to say my friends, but I can't see my friends. I just try to spend as much time. I try to unplug. It's really, really, really hard. I'm trying to do it more. I just try to keep perspective. I love baseball. I'm really glad baseball is back. You know, I try to find things that have nothing to do with with conspiracy theories or politics. You know, I don't listen to a lot of conspiracy theory podcasts. I don't listen to a lot of political podcasts because I just 
when I'm doing that, I want to listen or experience something that has nothing to do with that. So I try to, I try to put walls up. I try to uh, compartmentalize, but it's hard, you know, because we have so much information at our fingertips and because things are happening all the time, you know, there's not, you know, it's the news doesn't take the weekend off anymore, you know, then there's no like, Oh, it's going to be summer. Nothing's going to happen. You know, it's, it's relentless. And so I, I try to find little spaces and little ways that I can just shut this stuff out because if I, if I marinated in it all day, I'd go crazy. And then I turn into one of the people I write about. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today. 
with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Thank you so much to Mike Rothschild for joining us. I want to say one quick thing, and Sarah, you might have more to say about this too before we move on. We did not talk in this conversation about the intersection of race and white supremacy and conspiracy theory. Undoubtedly, there is a relationship. And Mike mentioned that anti-Semitism permeates a lot of these thoughts. There is definitely a feeling that a lot of the child trafficking posts are intended to deliberately undermine the Black Lives Matter movement. And mm-hmm. it's not that we want to ignore that issue. It's that we wanted to kind of level set with everyone because we have listeners who've been living QAnon for a couple of years because a family member is deep in that world, um, all the way to people who have never heard of any of this and don't know what we're talking about and a lot of in between. So today was about level setting Not to ignore that connection, though. I think that's something that deserves a lot more time and attention um, and research and thought. But I don't want to gloss over it in any way. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I have a letter of recommendation. Some girlfriends and I had a mom's only pool party. I got a mom's only cookie cake. We had our canned wine. We had some apps. We just hung out in a pool floating at a safe social distance without constant concern that someone, one of our brood, would drown or fight or shoot each other in the face with a water gun or on and on and on and on. Nobody asked us for anything except for, can you hand me another can of wine? It was beautiful. It was so amazing. It felt so nice. And I realized, I I told my girlfriends, like, as long as I get my girlfriend time, like, If we need to keep up the social distancing for a while, like when you said, well, I'm not going to be in a group of 100. I don't I'm not sure I really need to be in a group of 100 ever again. Like, I'm good. I'm cool. As long as I get my girlfriend time, I'm good. And I highly recommend uh, getting your girlfriend time with a mom's only pool party. A mom's only pool party sounds phenomenal. I have been enjoying a lot of porch sitting uh, with friends and driveway sitting and backyard sitting. But a pool party, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. I'm nervous to talk with you about my outside of politics thing. Mm-hmm. So we know that I love and embrace change. Everyone who listens knows that I do not shy away from changing my career or changing my political party. Like I will I will go hard if I feel a new direction is warranted. But I may have done one too many this time. If you guys have been listening for a long time, you know that in one of our first episodes, Sarah and I really were... Um, not nuanced at all about white chocolate and our hatred for it. Mm-hmm. We compared it to Ted Cruz. Uh, we went <laughs> on and on about how bad white chocolate is. And when we met in Louisville a couple weeks ago, Sarah, you bought these little ice cream bars. They were mini ice cream bars. Because in addition to having to have special breakfast at Pantsuit Politics gatherings, we also must have tiny desserts. Mm-hmm. So I took the box home 
And of course, a lot of what was left in the box were the white chocolate ice cream bars. And I'm just here to tell you today that they're delicious. I don't know what else to say about it. And I have thought through this, like maybe it's because of the ice cream overpowering the yes. white chocolate. But that's of not true. that's what it is. No, it's not true. The white chocolate, I like isolated the flavors. The white chocolate itself is delicious. And I feel really weird about that. It's like the biggest renunciation of identity that I've had. But I really like it. Well, I mean, let's break this down. Okay. Are they, they're, they're Magnum. Is that Dove? I can't remember. But I mean, I feel like this particular brand of ice cream bar has a high quality of chocolate generally. Listen, white chocolate is, my, my main beef with white chocolate is it's not chocolate. It contains no chocolate. It's a lot of sugar and dairy. If you're an ice cream company or if you make super high quality ice cream bars, then the quality of ingredients also in the white chocolate is going to be higher than say that disgusting Hershey's cookies and cream bar that everybody thinks is good. I don't think people think it's good. I don't know why it exists. But anyway, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to be a high quality ingredient. So I think it's going to have a little bit of a head start. It's definitely a high quality chocolate. I mean, it's not a chocolate. It's just high quality ingredients. I feel like it's like every time I hear Indigo Girls say multiply life by the power of two. I'm not even a math person. I know you can't multiply by a power. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's I'm. It's just it's good. I don't know what to tell you, but I just needed to confess it that I like it, that I've eaten it, that I will probably purchase more of them. I'm. I mean, you like it better than the chocolate ones. I like it better than the chocolate ones. In I there. don't believe that. I need a blind taste test. It's really something. good. Well, you can. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's blind because like you're going to be able to tell the really different. Chocolate. Yeah, I mean, they, right. they they taste really really different, but it's just it's just yummy. It's really now, well, I have told you this before. I have a cake cookbook that I love, The Cake Mix Doctor. And she has cake mixes or cake recipes where she will melt white chocolate and mix it into the batter. And I cannot recommend that highly enough. It's delicious because you're just adding a bunch more fat and sugar. And it's so good. And it's like really rich. Like I'm not I don't think white chocolate should like cease to exist. I think there are situations in which it's appropriate mainly just that cake mix i think if you're going to dunk if you're going to dip anything in white chocolate then that's just a waste you should have just gone ahead and dipped it in dark chocolate but maybe for like cake de- decorating purposes it should be a thing but i don't i mean the fact that you're that you're saying they're better than the chocolate ones i just I no they know. are i i'm okay. just i'm just announcing today i'm taking a big step back from my previous lack of embrace and tolerance for i, I still don't want the hershey's cookies and cream bar i was fixing to say if you start buying no. those this is this friendship is over <laughs> i don't want those but i do want these ice cream bars all day all right okay well i will i will i would give it a try i'm not saying i'm opposed i mean it's like it's a little mini ice cream bar the investment is not huge but I think there could be I'm willing to expand the scenarios in which I think beyond mainly just those cake recipes that white chocolate could be appropriate. Okay, I will. I trust you enough that I will expand slightly. I value that trust. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much for joining us as we touch on, you know, highly important, relevant issues of foreign policy and uh, the battlefield that is our brains uh, all the way to white chocolate. And we hope that you have a very good week. We'll be back with you on Friday, hopefully to tell you lots about our vice presidential candidate in the Democratic Party. Uh, Fingers fingers crossed. crossed. Keep a nuance to everybody.
Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.